Welcome to the Her Inspired Journey podcast, a show all for women about living your best life and fulfilling your passions from the backcountry to the table. No matter where you are, what hurdles you faced, or where you want to go next, we're right here on this journey with you. It's time to take charge, pave your way, and create success. Hey, you guys, welcome back to another episode of the Her Inspired Journey podcast. And this is part two of the Q&A. I am answering your questions, but today I am answering them with the help of some industry professionals, some friends, and with my better half. So it's going to be a fun one for you. We've got a little gamut of everything from introductory um, archery hunting, introductory to hunting in general, uh, a day in the life of me, what I eat. Uh, how Stephen and I prepare for hunts, what we use for shoes, our best gear tips, and all kinds of stuff. So sit back, stay tuned, and enjoy today's episode. So when I got this question, I knew exactly who I wanted to have on the show to answer it. My good friend Jess Harris, uh, she and her husband own G4 Archery in Hillsborough up in Oregon, uh, by Port, excuse me, by Portland. And um, I love what they're doing. I love their shop. And anytime I've ever been in there, even well before I knew Jess, I always felt really comfortable. I could ask the the guys behind the desk, you know, questions. I could reach out to Jess. And it's always felt really good. So this question comes from Michelle in Wyoming. And she says, what compound bow do you recommend for a beginner bow hunter? I've always hunted with a rifle. And last season, I dappled with a crossbow and enjoyed it so much, I'm excited to learn more. Jess, what do you think about this question, and what are your recommendations? Well, it's a good question, um, but it's kind of harder a harder one to answer. Uh, as a beginner getting into archery, um, there really is not a one-size-fits-all bow for every person. Uh, I would never put a bow in someone's hand when they come in and just say, like, here, this one right here is the one you need, and, like, let's not, you know, talk about it any further than that. There's so many different options out there that you kind of have to go through, like, a process of elimination to narrow your choices and then literally shoot every one of them so that you can decide is which one is going to be the right one for you. Um, but before you say go shoot a bunch of bows at your local bow shop, uh, I think it's really important to uh, do like a piece of advice. Ladies, do yourself a favor and take at least one lesson, if not more, by an archery professional. Like somebody not related to you, that you're not married to, not, you know, not to say don't listen to anyone else. It just means that it would be advantageous to get a third-party opinion before you go jumping off the deep end of like a new expensive hobby. Um I say that because if you're going to go into a shop and ask questions and search for bows and shoot bows, you'd really be doing yourself a favor by having a little bit of education first. Um, In a lesson, you'll learn things like the terminology of archery, of bows, of arrows, of tuning, of accessories. Uh, You're going to be better equipped to ask the questions and then to also understand those answers make like the most confident decision um, on your investment. If you're a first-time shooter and the first time you pull your bow back is while you're shopping, you just won't know what you're looking for or what it should feel like. Uh, In fact, it'll probably feel very awkward and really isn't safe. Uh, By taking at least one lesson, you've already started that development of your archery form and draw muscles and that thought process that 
you're going to need to safely draw your bow back. If you have been shooting for a while and you've never had a formal lesson, I would still say do it. I think that's a really good point. And honestly, it's not something that I had considered like pre bow, you know, purchase, I would consider that after the fact, but I think that's a really good point because just like you said, I even know for myself and from other, you know, women that I've talked to, like when you walk into a shop, you only know what you know, you know, so it's really hard to ask a question or to, to get clarity on something when you might not exactly know how it feels or what that terminology is. So I think having the lesson in getting familiar with archery as, as a whole first, is a probably a really, really good recommendation and place to start. So next question I have for you, Jess. I know we're not talking about a specific bow, but there's some different things that you might notice when you're shooting. So there's some bows that have different let-offs. Obviously, there's different draw weights. Um, there's a split limb. There's a single limb. There's all different kinds of bows. So what are the main things that you would have somebody looking for if they're, you know, like uh, Michelle said, she wants to get into hunting specifically with her bow. So it's not necessarily for a target archer. Are there any directions that you would point her in that quest to find her hunting bow? Sure. Uh, I'd say first, you need to have an idea of what your budget is. That is going to help you narrow down your choices. You can spend anywhere from like $400 on like a beginning, like, or package setup, like, intermediate level, anywhere to, like, $2,000. And there's a lot of space in between as well. So um, know your budget all in, uh, and that will help whoever you're working with point you in the right direction. Uh, a lot of shops offer financing as well, or railway. Uh, we do, but uh, I know it can be really helpful. Uh, the next thing that you're going to need to know, it's okay if you don't know it, uh, is your draw length. Even if you already know your draw length, we're probably going to check it again because some shops do it differently and you can come up with slightly different numbers. So the draw length is going to be the next big eliminator in the process. Some bows, um, especially ones deemed women's bows, uh, are going to be the shorter draw length bows. And so if you have a shorter draw length, then you're going to be limited to those bows. Um, if you have a longer draw, uh, it kind of opens up a wider range of bows for you to shoot. Uh, the next thing I would say is probably your draw weight. Now, this is kind of like a hard one because if you're a real beginner, you're, you don't really know how much you can draw back. Um, this is another area where if you had a lesson, it would really be helpful uh, because it would help you develop those muscles a little bit uh, and get an idea of where a good starting point would be for you. Uh, if you're going to be hunting, you should check with your local regulations uh, to see what the minimum legal draw weights are and start there. Uh, most higher performance bows are going to be adjustable within 10 pounds of whatever the spec draw weight is. So um, like in Oregon, I think they just moved it to 40. But uh, like if you have a 50-pound bow, you could turn it down to around 40. And at max out weight, it would be at around 50. So, again, at the beginners, you're, it's going to be harder for you to draw back those legal draw weights to start with. So, working with somebody to help you get there. There are so many resources these days for people out there to help women get to those higher draw weights or learn how to shoot accurately and effectively. Um, but there's really, you know, no excuse not to use those people. 
Um, there's also the option of like swapping out limbs if you just can't quite shoot 50 pounds yet, and maybe you're not even at 40 at its lowest weight. Um, you know, you could get like the 40 pound limbs, and it would turn down to 30, but that can get really expensive as well. Uh, there are some beginner and intermediate level bows that offer adjustable weights, so they can range from like five to 70 ish pounds. Um, and these are really great options, especially for kids um, starting out, women starting out, um, because it's so adjustable in your draw. It's usually they're adjustable in draw length and draw weight, so those are good options to start out with. Uh, speed. So you're probably going to hear a lot about speed uh, once you enter the archery world. Uh, you can find all of these specs online. You could literally Google any bow, and that's probably the first thing that's going to come up are the on that bow. Uh, they're usually listed on the tag or on the limb as well. Uh, most bows today uh, are built fast. It's 2019. Uh, if we're talking about bows from like, you know, 1995, maybe even 2000, I mean, they just weren't built the same way. So um, today we end up like splitting hairs at a certain point on which bow is faster and which one's not. Now, it's all relative to your draw length and your weight and your arrow weight, so it depends on your setup. So as a beginner, I would say not to get too hung up on this. <laughs> and with everything, there are trade-offs. So a faster bow could very well mean that you're giving up uh, the forgiveness of your accuracy in your bow. So, it, it, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all, um, and some people like a little bit of a slower bow. Some people like a faster bow. So, And, again, the only way that you're going to know those things is by trying to gain a little bit of education and shooting these bows before you make the investment. Um, the other specs that you're going to see on bows are brace height and axle-to-axle, and just to kind of, like, brush over those quickly, um, most bows today are built within a certain range, and so it really comes down to personal preference and your setup. Uh, higher brace heights are usually more forgiving. Lower brace heights are less forgiving. And axle to axle, um, the higher the axle to axle, the more accurate the bow is supposed to shoot due to the string angle and how it comes off of the bow. If you're in the target world, it's really common to see a 35-inch axle to axle bow. They are long, though. So the logistics of hunting and sneaking through the woods just don't really make sense. So uh, your typical hunting bows, you're going to see around, like, 31 inches. Uh, the next thing you're going to see on a spec sheet is the weight of the actual bow itself. So this is where you want to think about, I'm going to be carrying this through the woods, and, you know, is this too heavy for me? Is it, you know, imagine if it's their bow, then you're going to be adding all of your accessories on top of that. If it's a package setup, it kind of comes as is. Mm -hmm. uh, so carbon risers are going to be lighter. Um, and those are, uh, let's see here, um, your most higher end bows are made of aircraft-grade aluminum, and they just outperform carbon risers, um, but they also, they weigh more and they cost more. Uh, so really, again, you're the one carrying it through the woods, so you have to decide what's best for you. Uh, your let-off is something that you hear about a lot, probably as much as and it's important. Uh, it tells you the percentage of weight that you're holding at full draw. So if you've got a 50-pound bow and it's got 80% let off, then it's around like 10 pounds at full draw. So that's another thing, too, that you've got to think about when you're shooting a bow is how hard is it for you to draw that bow back? Think about, you know, are you going to be able to hold it back at full draw? 
some people like a little more let off, some people like a little less, so you just have to shoot it and figure that out. Um, and the other big thing today when you're uh, researching bows is you hear a lot about the draw cycle. So, again, going back to ancient archery, like the year 2000, uh, the draw cycle was not smooth. It was jerky and hard and had, like, weird humps in it. And today, uh, you hear about a lot of the new bows being really smooth. And the nice thing about that for women is that the smoother the draw cycle, the easier it is for us to draw back higher draw weight. And that, I mean, that's actually men and women. So it's just an added benefit. Um, and most today are built that way with uh, the idea of having a smoother draw. So if I could, like, leave this with any, like, long-lasting advice as you're getting started in this, um, sometimes an easy way into archery is by buying a used bow or a hand-me-down bow, and those can be great ways into archery. However, I think it's important to have a good relationship with a nearby shop because any options like that, you should really have somebody look at first and get a third-party opinion. Uh, what your shop is going to be looking for is, has that bow been dry fired? Are all of the mechanical parts in good working order? Are you going to have to replace anything in order to get it to work? Uh, are you getting a fair price? Is the draw length your draw length? Is the draw weight within your capability? All of those things are very important and if you got into a situation where those things didn't line up for your specs or what you needed, then you might be making that investment twice or have wasted money. We'll be shooting something that's really not safe for you. Super great points. You are a rock star, Jess. Thank you so much. I definitely knew that you would be the right person for this question and uh, really value your opinion and insights on this topic specifically. Oh my gosh. I just love Jess. She is as fun to be around as you would imagine she is. And honestly, her and her husband, Jason's shop in Hillsborough, Oregon, G4 Archery is one of the coolest shops I've ever been in. If you're in the area, I definitely suggest reaching out, going in, take a look at the techno hunt they have in there. It is seriously addicting. They've got all of the latest and greatest gear. Honestly, you have to go in. I will link to the location and their online store in the show notes here. Next up, I am going to sit down with Stephen and we are going to answer a handful of questions about figuring out if you make a good hunting partner with somebody else, about overcoming plateaus and dietary changes that you can make, and some other goodies. So stay tuned for Stephen up next. Well, he is back again, and some of these questions are going to be fun ones to answer with you. Some of them are actually specifically for you, for you to answer for us about what we do and how we hunt, what we take with us. So I'd like to welcome back to the show, Stephen, uh, who everybody knows who falls along on what we're doing. Uh, sometimes you're my better half. Sometimes you're my other half. <laughs> Which one are you right now? I feel like I'm your better half, your, your other better half. <laughs> Good awesome. to be back. Well, uh, we'll just dive right into these questions. Uh, question number one, and this is something that for me uh, just, I was excited when I saw this question on there because it's so complex and there can be so many different answers and different vibes, different feelings and opinions. Um, so this comes from Jessica from Oregon and she says, how do you know if you can make a good hunting team, whether it's with your new lady, friend, or significant other? 
This is a question that I think has so many different avenues to go down. I mean, the, the way that you described it when you first read it, it's how many variables are there, you know? Um, I think that I'd have to speak for myself to begin with is I got pretty lucky to be with somebody that is going to be my hunting partner that wants to hunt as much, sometimes more than me, you know? Um, I feel like you need to have the same goals, right? There's no playbook. It's not like you get to go, you know, in a perfect hunting partner, I want A, B, C, and D. I think that, you, you know, for like you and I, if we're going to go out on a six or eight or 10 or whatever day hunt, we kind of have to know what the daily goal is. What are we trying to accomplish today? Um, what are you hunting? Do you have multiple tags in your pocket? Who's the shooter? You know, you have to be able to agree on those kind of things. Um, I think that if it's somebody that you're just acquaintances with, you'll probably f find out pretty quick if you'll be a good hunting team or not. Um, I don't think that, I don't think right away you could profile somebody as a good hunting partner or not. It's going to, it's going to come out in the wash pretty quick. Um, I believe, you know, in my opinion, I think that you need to agree on the daily plan. You need to know what, what's the end game goal. What's the goal? Is it to take somebody on an elk hunt? for the first time who's elk hunted a lot or deer hunted a lot or whatever it is and then experience that with them or are you taking somebody who's never been before or are you the person that's never been so there's a lot of things to consider i think that as long as you can so we have a rule which is last year when we went on our idaho hunt with joe we said i said it's okay to be mad it's okay to be angry and fired up you just can't be mean right so no matter what if there's a disagreement you have to find a way to to remedy that and still be kind and friendly and because your hunting partner is probably proficient with a weapon and you don't want to be within striking range of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's just so many thing, different things to consider. And I think if you're trying to assess somebody, like maybe it is somebody that you're friends with. Um, maybe it's somebody that you know through work or you know from a hunting community or you've met on Instagram, which has been the case for me recently. There's just, everybody does things differently from how loud you are, the kind of smells that you have, what kind of deodorant you wear when you're out there, um, what time of day you want to hunt, if you're going to come back after dark or before it's dark. You know, there's just so many different things that I think you have to have an open communication with somebody to figure out what that's going to be like, because you can do things differently, but there's a big difference in having those differences and things just being so opposite that it won't line up because yeah. you can figure out what that middle ground is and how to maybe compromise. Um, but I think one of the best places to start is just that open communication about, like you said, expectations, what the plan is, what you're hunting, you know, what your conception of what this should be. If you can kind of lay that all out there, I think that you can get a good feeling from that. Um, but outside of that, being in those elements, the, you know, tireless days, you know, endless hikes, blown stocks, you know, opportunities that that go awry. I think that's when you really figure out who you're going to be able to hunt with and who might just be, you know, an experience. Like you might just go and do this one time with somebody or you might figure out that, hey, like we have a lot of similarities. We hunt the same way. You know, we have the same approach and mindset to these opportunities and it might work out really well. Yeah, for sure. The only other thing that popped in my head is if... um Let's say Courtney and I are out hunting and something goes down, right? Because you never you never think of plan B, plan B being an injury or a sickness or, you know, waterborne or whatever it might be. Do you have the 
do you have the belief in that person to help you out or get you out of there? Or and that's a huge help, factor. Right? Keep a level head. How can they help you? Because if they panic and shut down and you're the one bleeding out or something like that, you know, there's that plan B and you talk about it. You know, I feel like if we, even if we're in a, an area where neither one of us are super comfortable or familiar with wolves, so when we're in an area where we know that there's wolves, we don't tend to stray more than a couple hundred yards apart because it's it's hard to communicate. We don't run radios. We're typically not in an area where we've got cell phone service. So, you know, what's that person going to do when it gets crazy? So it's just something else to think about. Those plans definitely have to be lined out. And it brings up a really good point. Like you have to be confident in the person that you're hunting with, especially like if you're going to do an easier hunt or you might be hunting from a base camp, those things are great. You know, you do have to consider what happens if you get turned around or lost. But what is the person that you're going with capable of taking care of themselves and mm -hmm. capable of helping you if you need to? Yeah. I think that's another thing to really think about. You know, there might be people that want to hunt with you or you want to hunt with them, but they might not be on your level. And I think it's really important to kind of establish what that baseline is before you go Absolutely. find yourself in a yep. scenario. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, last thing that I would touch on would be mental toughness. If you guys, if, if you don't have the same mental toughness or that same wall you know, or the ceiling of what you're mentally capable of going through or enduring or staying comfortable. And if, you know, what's most important with any of those, if you, if those don't line up, I think that's probably a pretty quick determining factor, you know, day six or seven, you're super bummed out because it hasn't worked for you or you've blown a stock or whatever. And your partner's pretty pumped because they're about to get something done, you know, a, a bad attitude or, or mentally falling apart can bring down you know, your partner. So do you guys have the same mindset? Are you both mentally strong? Do you both plan on going, ah, it's 70%. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So I think that's another big variable. For sure. Good question. Thanks for sending that Heck in, yeah, Jessica. Good one. All right. So this next question comes from John. He is out of South Carolina. And I love that I've got some men listening into the show. That's very exciting. He asks, what exactly do you and your husband take on a multiple day trip into the woods, food and water wise? This is a really good question. Again, it's super um, relative to how you're hunting, what species, the terrain, the elevation, the temperatures, and all kinds of things. Yeah. But for example, let's talk about the um, backcountry, what was it, the 10-day um, hunt in Idaho for elk last year. Okay, um, John, the Carolinas, I, I grew up in the Midwest and, and traveled a lot through the, the eastern seaboard. And so knowing that, I kind of know where you're coming from if you're if you're hunting in that scenario where you might be hunting some black bears or some whitetail or whatever, the preparation needs aren't the same at all because I grew up driving my dad's truck out in the field, walking a maximum of 300 yards to the stand, and then that was it. I brought a Pop-Tart or a sandwich. <laughs> or you know, you're, you're, you're surviving for just hours. Um, so last year we had planned, I think it was a somewhere between 9 and 10 or 12 day hunt, something like that in Idaho. And Courtney being the now dehydration queen of, of, of hunting, um, she was able to put together a bunch of meals that we were able to not only really enjoy, I think that's huge. I think that's something that people, um, not to diss on the mountain houses or the, you know, those kind of things, but, you know, how do you perform daily with a certain diet? So take that it's what your body's used to. It's what you, um, operate regularly on. If you're going to switch that whole thing up before you even determine like how much food, 
or how you're going to transport or how you're going to eat it. If you just go, well, I'm going to be in the mountains for 10 days. I better change things up or step it up or something like that. I think you're probably in for a pretty rude awakening. Huge no-no. Yeah, yeah, you definitely want to try to plan your food around what you have on a normal basis. Your needs might go up and they might change, but you don't want to just completely switch things up. You might experience a lot of GI discomfort yeah. or irregularity. Um, and you just like you just said, you might not run on your you know peak performance if you're trying to eat a bunch of processed crap and you typically eat really healthy. Now, if you're coming from this you know standard American diet kind of thing where you might be eating a decent amount of processed foods or prepackaged things, um, then you're probably going to be okay to take more of those things with you when you mm -hmm. go. Um, but again, I think you kind of just really have to figure out what you need. For us, we don't typically eat a ton of that, and we do occasionally. We've been on quite the Pop-Tart kick since the Alaska hunts. Um, but for a general basis, give them a rundown of the kind of food that we take um, as far as our meals, snacks, and then what about hydration requirements? Sure. Um, I personally drink a lot of water, um, and I can speak for Courtney as well. She drinks a lot, but, you know, I have a, a little over a three liter. It's about 3.2 liters when I really slam all the water into it, um, camel pack. And I will fill that regardless what time of day I'll fill that thing to the max. And it's super, for me, it's really efficient, um, just to have that hose right there. I don't have to worry about digging an algae bottle out or snapping a pop cap or anything like that, you know, for, for noise sake. Um, and that way, if I've got my pack, I've got my water. And that's one thing that I'll, I'll fill up to the max every time I get a chance. As far as, you know, going in for a multiple day trip, <clears throat> I think that you need to consider filtration. Where are you going to get water every day? Um, how are you going to filter that water? Are you going to purify it? So how long does it take for your method of purification, whether it's Aquamira tabs or different solution, AB solutions? You know, is it going to be 30 minutes? Is it going to be an hour? Um, how are you going to keep all of that? Are you going to keep it all together? Are you in a freezing climate? Because if you're using, let's say something like a, um, like a water filter, um, like a Sawyer product, you know, water filter, those can't freeze. As soon as they freeze, they go bad. So there's, there's certain housekeeping, you know, that you need to consider. Um, but as well as where are you hunting? How far you guys had to drop down, how far to get water on your sheep hunt much you know? farther than we wanted to right exactly <laughs> you know and i i've talked to guys and gals who are like well we can make camp here because one it's not in the basin we're not going to be blowing any animals out two it's not completely exposed there's still a little bit of timber but it's a thousand foot elevation drop to get water so it's like well which ones you know what are you most comfortable with <laughs> where you're sleeping where you get your water um as far as food goes the one thing that I've always believed in is not starting your morning with a really heavy carbohydrate-based food or diet. Because in my experience, when I eat something like that, I'm starving in an hour. Um, those carbohydrates requ require water to chase them. So not only am I going to feel bloated and slow, I'm going to be... It, it, it causes a sugar spike. And when that, when that peak hits and you're feeling good you're probably halfway up the mountain that you're going to climb or trying to get to a ridge. And then as soon as that peaks out and starts to come back down into a valley, you're miserable. And then all of a sudden you've eaten up today's food. <laughs> so you're running out. So we tried to focus on, you know, protein, 
um, fatty foods. We were a little bit more keto and kind of a modified paleo, uh, if I remember correctly, for last year. So we did a lot of that. We did a lot of dehydrated vegetables, and we stayed away from the really starchy carbs and the things that aren't going to give you those peaks and valleys and keep you satiated. Yeah, for sure. I think that's, um, you know, it, everybody's different, and your body might want something different than John's body wants or Jane's body wants or my body wants. So I think you definitely need to know a little bit about yourself and your, um, your caloric needs before you get out there, what works best for you. You know, somebody might do really well with, you know, a higher carbohydrate breakfast or maybe balance between carbs and protein. Um, and others might do really good on fat. We run really good on fat, but that's not to say somebody else doesn't. So knowing your body before you get out there is, it's going to be a make or break because if you get out there and you don't have what your body is asking of you, you're going to bonk out early. You're not going to want to stay in the hunt. You're going to give up on opportunities because of maybe where they are, where the critters are crossing mm -hmm. because you don't want to physically get there. So right. I think making sure that you're supporting yourself calorically is obviously really important. Um, take things that you're used to. Don't deviate out too much. If you're going to try some dehydrated meals, you probably want to get a couple extras, excuse me, and try them beforehand. Mm -hmm. So don't make the very first time you try a meal, especially if it's vastly different from what you're used to on the mountain. Try it before you get there. Backcountry Fuel Box is a great way to try out some new things. Um, I can link to them in the show notes, but that's great because then you get a variety of different things. You can, you know, from snacks to drinks to meals to bars. And kinda, it's good. And it's really and good. And it's good. Yeah, you know. so you can try that out. Um, as far as drinks go, for me, I stick somewhere between, obviously, I do my coffee in the morning. I've been relying a lot on the Vapor Packs by Dark Timber, which are really, really, really They're good. They're so good. And I'm pretty coffee I'm picky. so good, yeah. Um... And then, you know, obviously having my water. The only other thing I ever drink when I'm on the mountain is an occasional energy and focus by Wilderness Athlete. And every single day I'll have a serving or two, depending on my output of the hydrate and recover. Imperative to balance electrolytes when you're out there on the mountain, especially in really cold or really hot temperatures. And it's delicious. And last year we started using it when we'd come in from the long, long mountainous hikes hunting and, and it was time to warm up and we just have it hot we just heat up some water throw some hydrate and recover in it and it was so good uh, my last i guess i don't know if you'd call it a tip but what i would want to touch on is what's your method of consuming your food so are you going to need to rehydrate it are you going to need to cook it do you need to heat it up do you need water for that meal so then that's going to determine probably a little bit more where you camp you know your access to water how much water are you going to need to to rehydrate that you know, and if you've got a limited supply and it's it's quite a physically demanding effort just to go get water, you know, how many of those meals are you going to be willing to work for per day? So kind of think about, do you cook it up? Is it going to be in a can? I mean, how much weight is it, right? You going old school um, or do you just throw it in a, a bag with some boiling water? You know, think about how you're going to you're going to consume that. Yeah, good point for sure. This next question is a good one, and it is from John in Montana. Thanks for sending this in. Another male listener, which is awesome. John, awesome. He says, what are the best dietary changes someone could make to lose weight? I'm at a plateau. Ugh, that's not a fun place to be for sure. I feel your pain because I think every person who's ever been on a fitness journey has eventually been to that place where you're either really stagnant, you can't lose the weight, or maybe the inches or the weight starts to creep back a little bit. 
Um, my number one thing to recommend for somebody who might be at that plateau is to track your food and be very real with what you're taking in. I think a lot of times people have an idea or their best guess might not actually be very close to what reality is. And I know, you know, even for myself, somebody who in the past felt like they were doing a pretty good job, once you get a very real idea of how many calories and how big the portion is and, and what that overall macronutrient balance looks like for the day, you might be able to see some obvious points of where you need to make changes, cut back, or maybe even in increase. Sometimes I think more specifically in women than in men, in my experience, women will be under consuming calories. And so that weight loss, you know, the metabolism starts to slow down. And so they eventually just aren't burning hot. You know, they're not burning the calories that their bodies needs because that basal metabolic rate has pulled back. They're not burning as many throughout the day. But what would be your answer to this question from John? John, thanks so much for the question. It's, I was really glad to read this. Um, if you could see me, I'm holding my hands out really far because that's how many variables are in between each one of them. I think that the first thing that I would do in my experience of history of working with people is I would say, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? What does now look like? What is now from now to, let's say, two months ago look like? How did you feel? What's your body feel like? Are you experiencing a lot of inflammation? Do you recognize inflammation? I mean, do you have any aches and pains that aren't associated with any kind of, you know, specific injury? Those kind of things. That's kind of a good way to, to, to point them out. I think that you know, what's your family history look like? What are your stressors? We have these cues, right? And they cause us to either eat or stress or do something that's typically, you don't just create this inaction from stress. It's more of like a, I'm going to go have a beer or a cookie or bread or whatever it is, right? Um, what are your cues? What does home life look like? What is work? Do you commute? There was a scientific study. I remember when I was in college that they said people that commute over 30 minutes every day, consume something like 2,800 more calories per three months, which is quite a bit just from the commute. Um, what are your goals? What are you trying to get to? I think that if you if, if you determined, hey, I'm just looking for some general weight loss to be a little bit more functional, to be to get on the floor to play with my kids or to, you know, so I'm not gassed walking up the hill to whatever, right? Then you look at what's your current let's say, fitness habits. What, what's your output? What do you do? Do you have a standing or a, or a sitting job? Do you come home after work um, and do you stand or sit? Do you move around? Are you active? What, what does that look like? I would say my biggest piece of advice would be, I think that most of us know what's good or bad. I'm pretty sure that 99% of the the people, especially that are going to be listening to this, know that the candy bars are bad for you. We joke about Pop-Tarts, but we know the Pop-Tarts are bad for you. And we know that, you know, slices of pizza are bad. They're not, they're not that good for you. They're, they're not going to give you what you need to be, you know, functionally successful to, to reach all your fitness goals, but they're good. They taste good. They're comfortable. So I think that you need to say, hey, do my goals outweigh my urges or my, those cues, those things that cause me to want to eat? Or um, is my comfort level, is that more important than what I'm willing to sacrifice to, to be fit or to feel better with myself? And just like this, just like John's doing, ask questions. You know, you might see some people who've had an amazing 
journey, um, transformation. And I would be willing to bet that they'd want to share that with you and say, hey, this is what worked for me, you know, based on my experience. I think that you'll also get a lot of, if you throw it out there, you'll get a lot of um, internet self-proclaimed professionals or experts who will tell you this and that and the other. And um, there can be a pretty scientific-based approach to it. There can be just common sense, you know, which is free and doesn't weigh anything. So I think that if you were <laughs> to use that common sense and say, hey, here's some things that really make me feel good. <laughs> feel good is like ice cream, cookies, um, having a soda, whatever, right? Happy is how you feel when you're fit, when you don't have a bunch of inflammation, when you can roll around or chase your kid or pets or whatever in the yard and, and do that for a while, when you're not miserable trying to get back to your hunting spot or whatever it is. So I think that if you can determine, you know, what makes you feel good and what makes you happy, um, one of those is long-term and one of those is short-lived. Um, I also think that if you were to make a plan and say, you know, it's September, by March, I want to fit into fill-in-the-blank. A lot of ladies have all these clothes that they don't wear anymore. They may have become a mom or they may have gone through some kind of really stressful scenario that's caused them to fall out of their healthy habits. Make that a goal. It's pretty simple. It's tangible. You can go right to your closet, look at it. You know if it fits or not, or you know how you feel when it fits. And guys can do the same thing. We do the same thing. You know, you've got this certain thing, or this is kind of something that I've used on guys a long time. Get in your truck, driving a bumpy road. If you feel stuff moving that probably shouldn't be moving, that's a good start. It's time to change some stuff. Look at it all, figure out where it fits in. Um, did you, could you grow it? Could you hunt it? Those are probably good things to eat. Heck yeah. That's right? the best recommendation yet. John, my top five things would be track your food. Make sure you're logging. Log for seven days. Hit the weekend also and see if there's any obvious changes to make. Number two, drink water. Drink, what, what is the recommendation? Half your body weight in ounces every day at a minimum. Yep. Yeah. So my aim is usually between 80 and 120 ounces of water every single day. Don't do this five days a week. Do it seven because that sixth and seventh, if you only do it five, are going to be full of water retention, bloat, and of course, your body's going to hold more water because you're not doing consistently. Number three, limit your processed foods. Aim for whole foods, things that come out of the ground or live off of the earth. You know, if it's in a package or a box, try to skip it. Make healthy choices. Number four, add healthy fats into your diet. Um, extra virgin olive oil, um, mixed nuts or trail mix, um, avocados, eggs, those are really good things to add into your diet to help burn more fat throughout the day. And my fifth one is going to be limit any of the reward food that you have. If you're an emotional eater, or if you are somebody who does really good and is on point with goals for a while, and then all of a sudden says, hey, I've earned this, I can do this, you are actually just negotiating with yourself. And those negotiations will only snowball over time. So limit those to maybe one meal or choice food per week. Perfect. Yeah, I think that's excellent. The, the one thing that I would, I agree 100% with all that. The one thing that I would add with the tracking your food is don't change it. Don't change your habits. And how many times have you had somebody give you a, uh, a five or seven day log and they said, <sighs> before they even give it to you, they know, right? They, they know whether it was good or bad or what they've been eating. Don't change those habits so it looks better on paper. Keep it the same. Keep it consistent.
Perfect. I hope that answers your question, John. And we are rooting for you. Let us know if you have any other questions. And hopefully the next time we hear from you, you have made some big gains. Our next question comes from the Women's Train Hunt National Champion. She was the champion of the elite division. And we actually got to watch her go to battle Jeez. in Colorado this year. This comes from Caitlin. She lives in Utah. And she asks, how do you gauge the proper pack training weight for you? Everyone is different, so it can be tough to strike the balance between pushing your limits and risk of injury. Super great question and uh, a consideration that definitely needs to be made for the longevity of your training and your hunting and your time on the mountains. Training smart is is uh, our number one priority. So take this one away. For sure. Caitlin, first off, congratulations. You're amazing. Um, I don't know that any of these answers pertain to you because um, I don't think that there's enough weight in the world to slow you down. I think, though, for the rest of us mortals, there's probably <laughs> some, some good things to consider. Uh, one is if you're going to be training with weight in your pack, what's your goal? I know I keep going back to goals, but if you don't have a goal, there's no roadmap, then how do you get to where you're going, right? I think that... Um, the most important factor to consider outside of a goal is, is your pack fitted to you? Is it adjusted correctly? Are you wearing it correctly? How do you feel when you wear it with just a little bit of weight into it as opposed to a bunch? I think that you need to consider your ankle, knee, hip, back, neck health, all these things that it's going to take impact. Um, this is a pretty simple one, actually. I think that if you're brand new at it, you add put 10 pounds in it. If you've never packed or trained, even though Caitlin has a lot, then you need to start slow and don't beat yourself up because this needs to be a marathon. You know, don't sprint with it. That, that being said, um, don't allow yourself to, no pun intended, sandbag and not put enough weight in there just because it feels good because you also need to know, is this the right pack? Is it adjusted mm -hmm. correctly? And depending on what you're doing with it, how much weight you're using in it, you're going to have to adjust that pack um, if you're going to be running with it, if you're going to be hiking with it, if you're going to have a tremendous amount of weight in it. So what I typically do is if I'm going to go out on my first pack hike for the year, which for us is kind of, you know, it's uh, kind of always happens, right? Um, I'm just going to pick a just a, a kind of midline of the road number, 30 pounds, 35 pounds, and put it in there and go and cover as much ground one as I need to see what parts of my body I need to work on. So if I, if my hips get typically with me, the first real pack hike, the outsides of, of my hips will get a little bit tight and I'll get a little bit sore. And that tells me that, Hey, I need to be working on some balance some some structural rigidity, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I will test the limits. I'll put 40, 50, 60 pounds in it and I'll start at a shorter distance and see how that feels and get my pack adjusted for it. And then I'll go and run that a couple times. Um, not run it, but meaning I'll use that pack weight if we're going to go and hike Pisgah, if we're going to do four or five miles or something like that. But then I'll go back. I'm not just going to keep 60 pounds in my pack for every single hike. I might take 25 pounds out and try to increase my cardio output and just get really comfortable with putting out with that pack on my back, shoot my bow with it on my back, um, you know, try to, I'd like to do pull-ups sometimes with my backpack on, anything, just go through even a workout routine with your backpack on, because if, if you're training with weight in a pack because you're a hunter or a backcountry athlete or anything like that, 
um, that's how we're going to play. So it's probably good to practice that way and, and just do some step ups, you know, walk around your yard. If you've got hills at your access, then, then hike and move and, um, be smart. You know, this is a, this is a long-term thing, like Courtney said. And if you're, if you're looking for longevity, um, in training, then, then don't go all out right away. Yeah. Is there a specific parameter for maybe a percentage of weight increase? So say somebody like, um, Caitlin or somebody with a, a good fitness base is getting ready for an upcoming backcountry hunt. If they've got, say, like two or three months to get ready, and right now they're up 50 pounds, would you recommend like a 10 to 20% increase in that overall pack weight for training? Or is it just kind of a by how your body feels and what the indication is that it's giving you basis? That's a great question. I think that I personally would go on feel. I do a lot on feel. Um, I don't think there's a lot of numbers that are going to tell me, man, I only added 12% this time. It should have been 20 or 25 or 30. I think that, you know, if we're out and we're elk hunting and, and one of us gets an elk down, we've got some packing out to do. I'm pretty sure that my pack isn't going to be sub 100 pounds, nor will yours, right? Especially if we're two miles or more from the car. Um, if you've never packed or hiked with, let's say, 80 to 100 pounds, in your backpack, two miles might as well be the moon. I mean, that's kind of a, it's kind of a general rule of thumb that two to three miles, if you're hunting solo or just with one other person, um, to pack an elk out, especially if it's kind of warm is a, is a long ways. It's pretty uncomfortable. Um, maybe, you know, unless it's 27 miles packing a sheep out, then you're, you're okay. But, um, I would look at one, if it's an athletic event, what's your, what's your standard? What is it going to be? Are you going to have 30 pounds? You're going to have 60 pounds. In that case, if you're going to have to do some work with 60 pounds, let's say probably three weeks before I peak with my training and it's, it's go time, I'm going to have about 15% more weight than what I have to perform within my pack. So then I can feel just a little bit better. And, and at, at 50 or 60 pounds, 15 pounds is a lot. It's a, it's a big difference. If you're going for a hunt's feel, I would say, what's the maximum that you could possibly have in your pack on that hunt? Probably a hundred pounds. If you leave some of your camp, some of your food, whatever it is, and then meat. Um, so I'm going to start at probably a third of that and I'm going to get to where that doesn't even bother me that I'm going to go in 10 to 20, you know, percent or pound weight increments. So 40 pounds, go to 50 pounds, go to 60 pounds. Um, if it's not easy to add those smaller increments, then go with what is convenient for you. That will add a lot of challenge. Um, just limit the, when you, when you first do those real heavy packs, just limit the distance and get a feel for it. For sure. Yeah. First and foremost, always listen to your body. If it's giving you indications of, you know, nagging joint problems or back issues or, or you know, could be ankles, could be feet, could be knees, hips, whatever. Just make sure that you're listening to your body and figuring out where you need to make those adjustments. Yeah, for sure. That the last thing that I'll add is that that pack weight needs to be sitting on your hips. You will, your life will be so much better if you can adjust your pack so the weight's on your hips and it's not just hanging off shoulders. In order to figure out exactly how your pack should be fitting, make sure you head over to the podcast episode, Fitting the Pack with Dana Monroe. We talk all about where it should sit, how much weight you should focus on, and exactly how to make sure you are carrying your load correctly. Oh, so good. I am loving these questions. And in fact, 
This is going to end up being a three-part Q&A with the next one coming as a bonus episode this Friday. So stay tuned for that as well. We've got a few more questions with my good friend and one of the uh, the hunting buddies that I was just hunting doll sheep with in Alaska. We had a phenomenal trip. We laughed seriously so much. I at certain points questioned if we were really hunting or just out having a good time. It was so awesome. I really appreciate this guy. I like what he stands for. I like who he is as a hunter and the way that he goes about the outdoors. Check it out now. So when I read this question that I got uh, from Case in Colorado, I knew exactly who I was going to ask. Zach Kenner, uh, who is the buddy of mine I was just in Alaska hunting with. He is somebody that spends a ton of time from Alaska, Wyoming, Washington. He's a little bit of everywhere. And this question, I'm going to point his direction. Case says, what are the most overrated and underrated pieces of hunting gear in your opinion? Zach, what do you think? Um, so this is kind of a difficult question to answer because in my opinion, especially when it comes to like overrated pieces of gear, I mean, well, I feel like there's, you know, the general blanket of everybody's normal gear, right? You got your boots, your, your clothing, your pack, um, your weapon, right? So that's kind of like the general, the, the general categories. So it's like, well, what would be considered overrated or underrated? Um, and I think that kind of depends on where you're hunting and, you know, little random things that you can throw in your pack because of the different terrain that you're going to be hunting. And so, like, I mean, for example, uh, you know, we, we were on an Alaska hunt, but I also hunt Arizona for coos deer in January. Well, I'm not going to, or in Arizona, one of an underrated piece of gear that I would take is like a, a metal scotch comb type thing. And I packed that to pull the choyo cactuses out of my legs because, you, you know, if you've ever been stuck with choyo, it you can't grab a hold of the dang thing yeah. because there's just as many needles trying to stab your fingers. And so with that comb, you can reach in there and get a good deep grip and it just pops straight, pull you pull straight out. And so that's obviously something I'm not going to carry in Alaska. There's nothing up here with thorns, you know, well, that's not true. There's devil's club, but that's different. It's, it, it doesn't stick to you like cactus says, but I mean, it's not like, that's a, a great tip for anywhere that has cactus. I mean, I say Arizona, but, even like the the uh, prickly, well, not prickly pear, but I forget the, the name of it. But it's the 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 low laying cactus that sits in the grass in like eastern Montana or South Dakota. You know, it's it's the same kind of concept. You end up you can't see it because it's in the grass, and you sit down on it, and it's not very pleasant. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's you know one example. Um, up here in Alaska, you know, one thing I like to carry is is a sponge. You know, something that a lot of people don't really think about. But I know you, I was kind of showing you uh, on that sheep hunt that, you know, it rains and rains and rains all the time. And especially in that particular hunt, we were nomadic. And so we were packing up our tent all the time. And it was nice to... You know, we, like we'd catch a break in the rain and decide, okay, let's pick up camp and get moving. And I pull that sponge out and I pull all the excess water off, um, you know, both the condensation on the inside and the, you know, the rain on the outside. And 
it, you know, once I've got the majority of that off, you know, five, ten minutes in the wind and it, it dries right out. And that really helps when, you know, we pack it all up because you don't get it completely dry. But when you open it back up, you know, then that next evening to, to set up camp, it's a lot drier than it could have been. And for having just a dry tent, but then also packing that extra water weight. I mean, I'm, I mean, I know the, the one day we packed up, I probably squeezed a half gallon of water off, off and out of the tent. Uh, you know, another, another example of our, on our sheep hunt, we dealt with uh, micro spikes and micro spikes is something I never used in the lower 48 and something I picked up coming up here to Alaska and definitely comes in handy in really steep country. And uh, I I feel like you could totally apply micro spikes to low, lower 48 hunts, especially in like, you know, steep country, whether you're hunting, oh, the Blue Mountains, the Northeast Oregon, you know, trickling down through Hell's Canyon, the salmon country in Idaho. I mean, all that just really steep country, micro spikes are, are something that, people should look into river and, river um, crossings they come in very yeah. handy for river crossings or slippery rock as well yeah you know it, that's one thing i kind of learned on that sheep hunt with you is is the river crossing you know jumping from rock to rock to keep your feet dry normally is kind of out of the question because when you you know lunge all that momentum and those rocks are sitting there gaining that slippery moss all the time you're gonna slip they're just they're it's worse than ice. Uh, but with those micro spikes, they just grip right to those rocks and never, I, I, yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll always use them on creek crossing now. Um, but then they also were good. And, you know, if you get a little bit of snow or even just frozen ground, you know, uh, it just helps, helps with that traction. And they'll, they'll take you places you probably shouldn't be, <laughs> but yeah, definitely something that not a lot of guys are carrying. And you should consider uh, another thing that's kind of new. You know, I feel like trekking poles are uh, one of those items that have been talked about in the last few years, and most mountain hunters are now packing them. Uh, but what I've now added to that is is they uh, black diamond cells, what they call a whippet, and so it's like a tweener between a trekking pole and an ice axe. So it's got a little. Um, ice axe looking thing on the top of it little oh, sharp well it's not like sharp enough to stab you but it's sharp enough to you know stick into the dirt and uh, things I use that for again steep country where you lose your footing and instantly I can I shove that hand straight into the ground and, and it helps gain, regain my balance um, or it keeps me from sliding down the mountain if, uh, if that happens and then the other thing I use it for is digging flat spots for my tent. And cause that's just, I don't know. I'm not a very good sleeper if I'm not sleeping on a flattish ground, junk, chunk of ground. And so whether it's, you know, just getting a lump out of it or actually digging out the mountainside to create a shelf to sleep on, that thing is awesome for that. And I know you've, you witnessed that called me the nest maker. <laughs> that came in handy several times on the uh, the Alaska hunt, and I was definitely very grateful that you had it because you carved out some nice spots for our tent quite a few times. So that was awesome. Yeah, it's it's 
like I said, that's that's brand new um, as of last year, I believe. Uh, so pretty pretty cool tool, you know. And and it it you you know looking at it, it's kind of mean looking, and you think that it you know could possibly get in your way while you're hiking, and it it doesn't. Um, very few times that I've been climbing some literally straight up mountains, and I would go to take a step with like my right leg because I hold that whip it in my right hand and I would I would catch I, I'd go to take that step as I push down with the trekking pole and my, I would catch uh, my pants on it mm-hmm. and I, I actually ripped a hole on my pants with it but uh, you know that's for as much as I've used it for I've only caught myself like two or three times so you know you, you kind of get used to it and I've never really seen it as, you know, being dangerous. I'm a huge fan of of carrying a second set of shoes, um, you know, whether it's Crocs or flip-flops or, like, super light Solomons are actually what I, what I carry, like, one of their lightest set. And I use that for crossing creeks, you know, if they're, if they're too deep and you're just going to get your boots wet. Um, <laughs> I'm not very tough, needless to say, and I don't want to walk across that peak creek in my bare feet <laughs> like i'd rather have uh you know a good solid shoe on to get across that and also it's because i don't want to fall in and get all my gear wet that's on my back you know so like to me it's pretty important and then having them around camp you know if you're ever in and around camp for more than a day it's nice to be able to take off those boots and have a set of shoes that can breathe and let your feet you know air dry um, then also why this is why I run the Solomons versus like a Croc or something is, you know, I've had issues with, you know, newish boots in the backcountry and instead of, you know, fighting through blisters or whatever, I'll pull them off and just wear my Solomons because they're, I mean, they're still a fairly durable shoe and, you know, for the last two days of the hunt. In fact, I did that sheep hunting last year. I had to wear my Solomons for two days walking out. And I was fine, you know, it, it completely relieved the, the heel pressure I was getting from one of my boots and, and, uh, worked out good for me. I didn't get any blisters. Those were the things that were like on the top of my head. Let's talk about contractor bags. Oh yeah. <laughs> Black plastic bags. Yeah. I'm a huge fan, uh, for anything. I mean, you hear a lot of of hate towards them because like, you know, I definitely, I use them as meat bags more or less. And it's to keep my pack and all my stuff from getting bloody, you know, especially up here in, in bear country where, you know, if I want that, leave the meat away from the tent at night, I don't want all my, all my gear to have that scent on it. And so, you know, I mean, I obviously don't leave them in the bag at night. I pull them out so they can breathe. Um, and then, you know, for the daytime when I'm actually packing the meat, you know, I'll, I'll put them in that bag to, to, to keep my stuff dry. And and then I'll normally, like, I'll, I'll bag the meat, and then I'll also have another bag for, like, the rest of my spare clothes, um, my sleeping bag. Like, basically, I use it as a dry bag for my gear also. Mm-hmm. For a couple reasons. One, I'm really hard on gear, and I don't seem to have a dry bag last very long. You know, I can stuff my sleeping bag in a dry bag, put it in my pack, 
and it seems like within the end of one trip, I've wore a hole in that dry bag somewhere. And so it's no longer dry anymore. And with those black plastic bags, like just get, get them at Costco, they're, they're still not cheap, but they're like 25 cents a piece or something like that. And I only use them when I need them. So it's like I don't put my sleeping bag inside that black plastic bag every time, you know, when, like when I'm moving camp. But it's all of a sudden when I'm going to put blood or, you know, in my pack, then that's when I wrap up all my stuff and keep it dry. Or if I've been out hunting all day and, it's gotten, and, my, and my pack got super wet, well, then I can, you know, again, keep my, my puffies, my puffy pants and coat and my sleeping bag dry because that's what's going to keep me alive out here. And um, even though my pack's off and wet, my extra clothes and my sleeping bag, is, you know, remains dry. And then what if I wear a hole in it as I'm hiking or whatever, just shove it in my pack and catch it on something. I normally carry anywhere between five and ten, and so I always have spare, you know, instead of relying on one dry bag to do it all. And they're, they're super light, so it's not like I'm adding a bunch of extra weight for that. And they so. come in super handy if you have to make a makeshift shelter in a cave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, they also make for, if you're an idiot and didn't bring rain gear, you know, they make for a pretty quick and efficient a uh, little poncho type thing and will keep you fairly dry. And I have done that in the past, especially like in the lower 48 where it wasn't calling for rain and all of a sudden one little thunder boomer comes through, you know, it only lasts 20, 30 minutes and I just, you know, black bag up for to wait it out and uh, move on, you know. They're pretty handy. I've also used them to catch water in, you know, in some of the higher alpine areas where instead of dropping down 1,500 feet to try to find a spring, you know, if a rainstorm comes through, you can kind of set those things up, and it's amazing how much rain you'll catch. And, and it'll, you know, easily fill up an algae or sometimes more. That's a great point. Yeah, I've never used it for that, but that would come in really handy if uh, if the scenario called for it, for sure. Zach, let's talk a little bit about optics, because I think that's one area that people, um, maybe especially if you're like an inner you know, if you're new into hunting or you're trying to figure out where you want to spend your money when it comes to gear, I think optics can be an area that people tend to, to kind of like err on the side of lower end. Um, I disagree. I think optics need to be farther up on the priority list because if you can't see them, you can't kill them. What is your take on good optics? Um, that's pretty much spot on as to how I kind of feel too. And and, you know, what I've, what I've heard said before is just, you know, buy the best optics that you can afford. Because uh, in the end, yeah, the be- better optics is going to pay off. But don't get me wrong, I, I've killed a lot of animals with $200 binoculars. You know what I mean? I, and, and so, it, but at the same time, even though I was running $200 binoculars, I still had a, a scope on my rifle that was, you know, well over a thousand so it's like because i know that you know that that's more important making that perfect shot than uh you know than actually well then having the increase in quality of glass when running the binoculars you know i chose to spend it there first now granted i've upgraded my binoculars since but like when i was kind of getting started to me it was more important to have the best glass on my on my you know my weapon 
than, than to have, you know, better binoculars. And then I upgraded the binoculars, and then I finally broke down and bought a spotting scope last. But that was more just because it seemed like whoever I was hunting with tend to have a sp- tend to have a spotting scope, and so I didn't, you know, feel the need to pack two. So I didn't really need to have one at all. And the few times that it would have been nice to have it, you know, I got by without it. But yeah, um, you know, up, up here in Alaska, it's a spotting scope is pretty huge, especially when hunting sheep because if they're not, well, you have to tell if they're legal. You know, it's one of the few species that have so many requirements to even just have a legal animal. You know, you hunt deer in the lower 48, and I mean, there are some point restrictions in some states, but a lot of times it's, you know, you can shoot a forking horn. So, you know, you're, you're not, you don't have to observe those antlers, you know, strictly before you pull the trigger. Whereas yeah. like with sheep, it's, it's sheep, it's completely different. You know, they have to be full curl, they have to be eight years old, um, well, full curl or eight years old or double broomed. And so it's, you know, there's there's uh, a lot that goes into really dissecting that animal before we pull the trigger. And that's where it gets body scope comes in huge. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, as, like as far as brands go, it's like they all have higher end glass, you know, so it's like. In, in my opinion, it really doesn't matter. It's kind of like that. Just the more money you spend, the the better glass you're going to get. And I, and I do I do think it helps a lot. It definitely having, changes having the game. Yeah, if you can, if you yeah. can, you know, especially it depends on what species you're hunting. You know, what your aim is or what the kind of country is. But it definitely could be a game changer in you know even finding or identifying what you're looking for. There's yeah, I agree. so many different questions that we could cover when it comes to gear, but I want to ask you one more, and that is in the regards to tripods. I feel like sometimes I'm on the fence if I want to bring one or if I don't. I personally feel like it's changed my glassing game. It makes me sit behind my optics a lot longer, but what is your take on like big game species down here in the lower 48, taking a tripod or are you leaving it behind? Um, so... My opinion on that was was different four or five years ago. Um, I, I didn't really used to carry one unless we took a spotting scope. And but I, I don't know. I kind of hunted a little bit differently. And then now that I have you know hunting a lot more alpine stuff, you know, especially for mule deer, man, a, a spotting or a, a tripod for your binoculars is huge. I, I mean. I completely agree with what you said. It, it helps you stay behind the glass longer for sure. And I don't know, it, it, it's easier to, to sit there and stare through that glass when it's perfectly still instead of, you know, trying to, to, to pan back and forth, just using your hands and, you know, your, for one, your arms get tired of holding up those binoculars and you kind of, I don't know about necessarily getting motion sickness, but it's like, your 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 eyes get tired of of trying to compensate for the movement all the time. Whereas if you're you know you got the spotting scope or binoculars on that tripod, uh, it's it you're not just looking for an animal anymore. You're also able to pick up movement, and I mean the slightest movement. You know, a deer takes one step, and if that binoculars are solid, 
you you pick it up so so much easier and you know then it it's also just easier to see through like i don't know i'm 100 percent for a tripod now and and in all all conditions i mean whether you're hunting the the you know the the mule deer or well basically bigger country open country where you where you are gonna glass a lot more yeah for sure I agree with you 100%. Well, I won't take up any more of your time, and I thoroughly appreciate you getting on to talk some gear and to answer that question for us. I uh, look forward to some more adventures and to seeing what you're doing. I'm going to link to um, your Instagram page in the show notes so that people can reach out because there might be some more gear nerds that want to pick your brain just a little bit as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, Anybody can ask questions. I'm always willing to help. And yeah, I mean, I've definitely been around and hunted all different kinds of climates and, and, uh, it's definitely turning myself into a gear nerd because everything's a little different for every different scenario. For sure. Without a doubt. And, uh, he's good at making you laugh and eating pop tarts too. So make sure you (laughs) make sure you go over there and give Zach some love. (laughs) Well, yeah, thanks for having me on Courtney. I appreciate it. Well, ladies, that does it for this show for today. I hope that you found some inspiration, some good advice, and definitely some encouragement to take with you on the rest of your week. I'm already looking forward to coming back next week and giving you some more insight, some inspiration, and some tips on how to navigate your best life. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button and leave a review. Your feedback is so important to me. I would love to know the questions that you have, any topics or ideas, and your feedback. You are so valuable to me, and I really appreciate you taking the time to leave the review and subscribe to the show. See you next week on Her Inspired Journey.